0: Back to another commodity conversations. In Australia, we've had a pretty tough time in agriculture over the last year or two. But overseas, there's plenty of places around the world that are doing it tough, tougher than us, and and they have been doing it tougher than us for a long time. And we, I guess, to an extent, we owe it to the rest of the world to pass on some of our knowledge and and get out there and help people who are you know not doing as well as we are. So. Mercado we've been working a lot in the past with uh, aid development overseas and we we are working on a number of uh, uh, exchange programs which you can find about from from our staff Uh, so you can if you're interested in going overseas and uh, passing on some of our knowledge to developing countries then get in touch with us and we can hook you up with something but what we do what we have today is a conversation with Pete Walker And Peter Walker uh, has just come back from Kenya, where he's been doing some pretty fantastic stuff and and really helping out uh, communities over there uh, to improve their efficiency. Really valuable that he spent that time out there, and he's going to come back and uh, share some of his insights with us today. Before we start, we'll we'll just uh, introduce the sponsor for this podcast, and then we'll jump straight into it. As always, we've got to thank our supporters to make this podcast possible. And uh, this week's sponsor is livestockpricing.com.au. My good friend, uh, Rob Kelly, uh, he's worked in the grains industry for a long time and he's moved out of grains and into livestock. And one of the things in grains is that you do have great degree of transparency when it comes to pricing. You know, you can access prices for... You know, almost any sighting in Australia, you know, I can access grain pricing in Brazil or in the cattle industry in Australia. It's it's not necessarily all that transparent. And what uh, what Rob's been able to do is he's been able to put everything into one place in terms of getting data, especially on that sort of over the grid type of pricing. I Recommend you know there won't be anyone listening to this who doesn't have a smartphone. Uh, so jump on to the App Store or Google Play and give it a download. You can look at your local area, you can see what the prices are, and it just gives you an indication of you know, what is happening in the local environment for you, sort of cattle or uh, sheep or even goats, I believe. So it allows you to filter you know what is relevant to you and, and have a look at price grids. Hi, Peter, thanks for coming along. I, you've just come back from Africa, so we thought it'd be a good chance to catch up with you to find out what your experience has been. But why don't we start from, this, from the start? What made you decide that it was a good idea to go out and experience agriculture in Kenya?
1: Well, right, it, it was not any altruistic sort of ideal that I'd uh, I'd sort of planned a long time ago. Um, I must admit that um, uh, Robert Herman had uh, had come to me with uh, the idea that uh, Mikado was getting involved with these uh, assignments. And I thought, well, I could probably be involved in that. I've got to the stage in my life, I haven't done... A whole lot to uh, to the, for the community or to uh, to sort of benefit anyone else in in locally or globally, and uh, just been working alone as a farmer for a fair while now, and thought there's probably time to try and give back a little bit of my knowledge and a little bit of my um, my experience to uh, to people that probably could benefit from it potentially, or that uh, that I might be able to um, show them some some different way of thinking that uh, they could use in their own agricultural system. So it was more of a point from that aspect that uh, I, I chose to apply for, the, uh, for that assignment. And then um, the African one was coming up fairly quickly. And, uh, and I thought, well, I know that perhaps my experience is, ba- is mostly in livestock and cattle and sheep and, uh, and less so in, in cropping. I've still got some yeah, some things that we do at the farm that are related to cropping. We do a little bit of uh, canola and wheat as well as uh, a lot of forage crops. So I thought, well, I could probably um, learn a little bit from Kenyan farmers as well as being able to uh, present a different perspective. So that was
0: perhaps the main reason I, I applied for the, for, the, for the assignment. So it must have been a bit of a culture shock coming from, well, the Western districts of Victoria... Out to the what the highlands of Kenya. So what were what were the big the big shocks to the system that you felt when you're out there? Well, um, yeah,
1: first of all, I suppose is the uh, is is the change in weather that uh, that you've experienced. It, it, it was actually surprising. The highlands uh, in Kenya are a fairly stable environment. At and um, what I thought I was going to similar sort of temperatures we'd been getting here through the summer weren't uh, anywhere near that they were probably around 28 to 32 degrees celsius but that would happen day after day after day and uh, and the the next uh, big difference was uh, looking at the climate and thinking well each day was basically because it was so close to the equator was uh, it was 12 hours of daylight and then 12 hours of uh, of night time and, uh, and that didn't change either much. So basically it was um, a fairly consistent climate and, uh, and the seasonality is, uh, is obviously not there either. Although I was going into what they were expecting to be their, um, their long rain season. So I was hoping to see a bit of rain and, uh, and experience sort of the growing conditions during those, those rainy times. And uh, unfortunately that didn't happen. And um, yeah, so those that, that were the points from the differences from the, from the Western District, I suppose, that uh, I didn't experience the, uh, the huge changes that we get in Ballarat with, with the changes of season. But um, in terms of, of the culture of the place, that was perhaps the biggest eye-opener. And, uh, and moving south from when I got off the plane at Nairobi Airport, you could see just the, uh, the huge population... Uh, the difficulties with congestion in Nairobi as, as you went down and um, and just the amount of uh, activity in terms of um, building that was going on and obviously things that were half built and half left undone. the roadsides were pretty messy, but the roads were trying to get into order and uh, and just the numbers of people I suppose was uh, was the biggest shell shock.
0: So, so going over there, you, you, you made it into Nairobi, and then you went out into the countryside. Did you, what, I guess it's it's a it's an interesting place to go to all all of these developing countries because it really is outside of our our realm of experience. But what did you find in terms of when you got to the farm? Did you think it was a case of what have I signed up for? Or what where did you? I can't imagine what it would be like. You know, what was it like your first experience with a with a real Kenyan farmer?
1: Interestingly enough, um, as soon as I got there, um, we drove off the highway, which was the main Mombasa highway, which takes uh, a, a huge amounts of trucks and uh, cargo between the coast and Nairobi. Um, we drove into a, uh, into a game reserve. It was more of um, a, a private conservancy. And, uh, and there's obviously security all around the place. So a man opened the gate. The next thing I'm seeing is uh, sort of this yeah, typical savanna land that you may well have seen on, on wildlife documentaries. The, um, the 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 low uh, scrubby trees that are full of spikes and uh, and this grassland. And the next thing I see is uh, is sort of a wildebeest, a little mob of wildebeest and a mob of zebras. And I'm thinking, God, I've only just left the highway. And all along the way, there'd just been um, sort of development and population everywhere, and uh, and that was a bit of an eye opener. Thinking that yeah, this this game is so close to uh, to the towns and habitation. Now, fortunately, that uh, that was um, going into the place where I was actually uh, going to be lodged and, and staying. The next step was to then the next morning get up and go over to. Um, to the farm where Stuart worked, Stuart Bardens running 2,000-odd uh, or odd acres of, um, of heavily cropped area. And then just looking at the contrast between that savannah land, as, as I went across there, there was more wildlife, and suddenly you could see oh, one of his big uh, fields or his big paddocks that uh, he crops. And I'm looking at it, and then I look further afield and I can see this green crop, and I'm thinking, well, this is totally different to the, to the totally dry savannah, I wonder what's going to happen here and uh yeah we pulled up to the big farmyard and he's got a whole lot of machinery and i was given the introduction of uh, of all the um of, of his of his process and what the uh the business is doing there and i thought well this is a bit different to what i'm expecting i thought i was going to be seeing um uh sort of village farms small subsistence type farms and uh, thinking oh am i really going to be here to be able to help uh, a big cropping man like Stuart and uh, and his assistants with anything, and anyway, a bit later on, we were to discover that yeah, we were to be uh, helping the local villages and their small scale enterprises just across the uh, across the
0: paddock. So, so Stuart, we we've covered Stuart in a previous podcast. He's an interesting fellow, but when it comes down to those smaller local farmers, you know, what what is a small scale farmer over there? Is that you know a hundred hectares or? know more or less and and what was that first first discussion like and and is there a language barrier or you know did they speak English or did you have you know assistance in that sort of a a level?
1: Um, Yes well I suppose the small scale farmer that I was exposed to uh, in that area was the uh, the local village of Chumvi and uh, they're mostly well, they were split into well, the whole area of a uh, another ranch was split up into a um, into a small village, and uh, and the block sizes were either 0.8 hectares or one point seven hectares. So, um, the the, the small scale farmer is therefore just using those block sizes to uh, produce sort of either maize or beans or small scale um, enterprises that can be. Um, yeah, easily uh, either consumed themselves or sold quickly as, uh, as a, a bit of a cash crop for the, for the local um, population. Um, in terms of uh, the language barriers, the, most of the people I was running into had learned some English at school, although the, uh, the main language is Kiswahili, which is um, a fairly widely spoken uh, language in Eastern Africa or northeastern Africa. So, yeah, I was uh, at a bit of a barrier there because, yeah, you could uh, hear a lot of the locals uh, exchanging a lot of uh, banter and uh, interesting comments, obviously, to each other about me or the the rest of us Mzungos in Swahili, which we couldn't understand. But mostly they were very friendly and very helpful in terms of um, giving their information in English to me and uh, and, and doing their best uh, to... Explain and uh, translate things if I needed to um, find some interesting gear out.
0: So, so when you got there, like I've seen some videos that that you helped produce some some interesting technology for to assist them with with planting. I believe it is. Can you you run us over a bit about what you did with them?
1: OK, so the main um, aim of the project was to uh, assist with developing uh, well, or improving their, their ability to seed their, uh, their small-scale farms and, uh, and put in small-scale crops. Um, the, the, there had been uh, already, Stuart had been developing um, the ideas of zero-till agriculture with the small-scale farmers that were working with him on the farm, they'd uh, run through the needs to try and conserve moisture, um, reduce their weeds as much as possible, and to um, to rotate their crops, and usually with the with the help of uh, various chemicals to reduce weeds and competition. And so that area had been fairly well covered by Stuart in the past, and he'd been um, actively uh, yeah conveying all his experiences and his knowledge to, uh, to the local farmers, particularly these five that we worked with. And um, in the end, yeah, the, the their biggest uh, constriction of their, their trade was their costs of planting and harvesting. And that's where I, uh, I was hoping to be able to help out. Um, they'd uh, find that they would need to use nearly sort of 20 people... In the course of a planting season, to plant each field, which was a very uh, laborious hand, uh, yeah, manual task that involved making furrows with hoes for starters, uh, over uh, and over a hectare. You can imagine that's quite a quite a task when you're doing 37 sort of row spacings and and digging across a field for a hectare. So, uh, and then they'd go back and hand plant. And have another t- team of people coming behind the planters that were putting the seed in the furrow and covering it over with a rake. So yeah, it was costing quite a bit to employ the numbers of casuals they'd need, and uh, and it was thought that well, let's see if we can get together and find a a small seeder, something that may well have been used previously, and uh, and adapt it to the to the local environment and the conditions. And we were uh, sort of successful in uh, finding a. Um, uh, an agricultural machinery company a little bit further to the northwest of Nairobi that had been making a, um, a small grain planter which was uh, designed to be animal-drawn um, that was able to do small seeds in, in fairly uh, loamy sort of conditions. Unfortunately, that hadn't really taken off for Indume, so um, they had to sort of bring it out of, uh, out of their, their vault and uh, reconstruct one for us and uh, and then it was up to us to try and uh, adapt it and modify it and uh, and make it suitable for the uh, the local clay soils, the black cotton soils they called them. They were very um, calciferous, very high in pH, and uh, and very well, you'd call them the self-mulching type clays that would uh, yeah really
0: um, stick to your uh, to your implements. Yes, so. <laughs> it's pretty impressive stuff that, that you guys have done. And, and in terms of that, it's interesting when you mention about the labor, which, which we know from a lot of African commodities, tea, coffee, cocoa, they are all heavily, heavily using, using manual labor to do things which in the rest of the world would be done with a form of mechanization, largely because labor is, is cheaper. But it's still a major cost. So when when you were out there, you've you've obviously experienced agriculture in Australia. But seeing seeing how far behind they are to an extent to to Australia on on the whole, what do you think the what do you think the future is for for African farmers? Do you think it's they're going to see some very quick advancement over the next you know ten twenty years with with a lot of this access to overseas technology and and techniques? You know, for instance, in the in the small area you were in, what do you think their potential is? Do you think they've got a lot of potential to increase their yields dramatically?
1: Certainly, Andrew. There has been... Well, it was related to me that um, most of the, the small acre farmage, farmers there have been uh, producing maize and beans. That's one of their their staple-type um, diet dietary requirements. And they'd been... Um, Pounding the soils with a with a disc plow and uh, year after year and um, and trying to get two crops a year out of the, uh, the 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 short rains and the long rain season and they weren't really um, being terribly thoughtful on uh, on how they were trying to conserve soil structures or or even add uh, organic matter back into the soil so all or, or control weeds. So what you'd find is that um, you'd look across these small fields and you'd just see a, sort of a plethora of weeds that were growing, had been growing since the short rains back in uh, November. And, uh, and now they were looking to get ready to, to go into uh, planting in the long rain season in March, April. Now I think, as Stuart has demonstrated uh, to them uh, quite extensively, that they could do a whole lot better on yields. Now the guys that uh, had been working with Stuart and using his uh, principles and techniques in the small fields had shown that uh, they could easily prepare crops and uh, harvest crops to the same standard and to the same, or well, to even greater yields than Stuart could on his uh, his large acreage farm with his heavy mechanisation. It was also related to me, I suppose, that. Um, the, um, the, the labour availability in, in some of these small towns is changing. A lot of the uh, young people, youths, and, uh, and even, uh, even elder people are, are finding it more, um, I suppose, profitable or more a, a better chance of gaining a better income by moving to the cities. And there's more and more resistance, I think, to, um, to doing some of this manual labour and i think that's uh, that's where the secret's going to be with uh, just increasing sort of this small scale mechanization for starters and then uh, and then perhaps moving to larger stuff.
0: That's an interesting that you say that I'm surprised to hear that there's a lot of people moving out more from the countryside into the the cities but i guess that's the same parallel that we've seen within australia over the past 30 40 years. But it's i wonder if you know does that cause more issues along the line do we, will we see um, I guess consolidation of these farms from small family blocks to you know larger conglomerates, which I suppose we have seen in the likes of uh, Ukraine and Russia, where smaller farms have all been amalgamated. But coming coming near to the end of this, I just wanted to ask you, what are the, what what next for you? Like you've had this experience, you know, do you do you plan on doing more type of work with these type of things, or have you brought anything back from Africa that you think this is what I want to? What's what's your takeaways from it, really?
1: Um, well yeah that's an interesting question because um i'd uh, I'd love to go back and uh, and sort of see the, the the further development of these guys and see how many um how many other villages are going to uh, to take on some of these principles of, of this conservation farming uh I'd love to um yeah do another assignment if I could just see my way clear to uh, to perhaps uh, go back to to kenya or to anywhere there in uh Eastern Africa to see a little bit uh, more, perhaps remoter villages. I think those sort of remoter places would probably be um, would be right up for uh, for improving their um, uh, yeah improving their yields, improving their production practices to uh, to go a little bit further. But uh, probably some of the, the main messages to take home from it are the way that the communities do seem to bond together. It was, uh, it was always evident to me that um, there was never any shortage of, um, of community labour. Uh, I think there's probably fairly high levels of unemployment, particularly amongst youths, but uh, also um, probably underemployment as well. And I think one of the big take-home messages was that uh, they could always mobilise some of that labour quickly to do, a, to do a job, and people were always more than happy to help. And uh, to come along, obviously, they'd, uh, they'd want payment for it. But they knew that uh, they'd probably have a, um, uh, an issue that they needed a hand with one day and that, uh, the, um, that sort of community feel could be reciprocated and some labour or other um, uh, infrastructure or resources could be offered up pretty quickly too. So that was perhaps one of the, uh, one of the big take-homes, that they, uh, they do seem to get together work as a community and
0: work, uh, yeah, very effectively like that. Well, I think that's that's a good message for everyone to have is that, you know, we probably would be good if we all worked together better even in our environment here in Australia. And, and we do see it to an extent, but probably not to the levels that we see in, in those communities in, in Africa. But you've not considered selling up the farm and, and moving out to Kenya and starting up again?
1: No, I probably won't do uh, do as Stewart has done. I mean, that was a big commitment when uh, Stuart obviously decided he was going to uh, sell up and uh, and look to moving and start his whole agricultural business over there. But he's done it with um, some very good uh, uh, ideas and uh, and principles in place to actually convey what he's doing to the locals and to uh, to try to encourage the. Um, the smaller farmers and everyone to take on those principles and and he can obviously demonstrate those uh, principles to them i probably uh yeah i do enjoy uh, farming here in the western victoria and uh, and uh, and pretty comfortable here i must admit um certainly life is a is a fair bit harder over there you um there's always talk of corruption and so on and the and the, the 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 Hold ups that you uh you experience in terms of being able to deal with with government and government uh infrastructure over there so uh yeah i'll, I'll i think i'll stay put in australia farming but i'd certainly like to go back and visit and and see some more of uh, some more agricultural practices over there because there's always plenty to learn and uh plenty that we can exchange with them
0: well f- thanks for coming along peter i just want to go back to just make one point really before we end at the start you said you didn't do it out of you know altruism or wanting to do good but i think in the end you have done some fantastic stuff over there and i think you've got to give yourself a, a pat on the back and even though it wasn't an intention you have uh, you know helped some of these farmers improve their productivity and it's it's a good thing so you know thanks for thanks for coming in today
1: yeah thanks andrew i hope i have been able to um to to show them some uh, some little uh, gave gave them some benefit of my experience but um, they've certainly uh, they've opened my eyes up and they've certainly uh, shown me that we can uh, we can probably take lessons from them
0: well thanks very much for coming along